Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Coconut Grove, Florida, right outside of Miami, of course, at the Ritz-Carlton. My next guest, an old pal of mine, who I always check in with every time I come to Miami for all the obvious reasons, because here's his title. He's the Assistant Aviation Director and Chief of Security at a small little place called MIA, Mark Hatfield Jr., welcome. Thank you, Peter. Good morning. Um, You know, I can always ask you, like, what's new, (laughs) because... It's constantly evolving at the airports these days, and you're at the forefront of that. Uh, I'm going to start with something I don't normally normally do when it comes to an airport. I'm going to start with some good news. I I know this is going to make your day, but I mean... I'm off balance already. I know. (laughs) (laughs) But the other day, I was flying in from from Spain, actually, um, and landed in Miami and went through, you know, uh, basically border protection, right? Um, I'm a member of Global Entry, which, by the way, is the best thing to happen since sliced bread. <clears throat> One of the only government programs I can actually tell you without hesitation actually works. But something else happened that day. 
which I wasn't prepared for. For those people who have global entry, you know how it works. You, you obviously, you register for it. You have to take uh, answer a rather, relatively long questionnaire about everywhere you've ever been in your entire life, which you could imagine a mine went to extra pages. But once you clear and you have your interview and you're given global entry, which I believe is good for five years, at that moment, anytime you're entering a U.S. gateway, which has global entry, which I think everyone does, uh, you put your passport at the kiosk, it takes a picture, asks you a series of questions, and in less than two minutes, actually less than about a minute and a half, you get a receipt and you go get your bags. And unless something's crazy, you leave. This time, I get to the kiosk, I put my passport in, and I'm waiting for it to ask me the questions. And the next thing you know, I'm done. Welcome to the world of biometrics. It, 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 it recognized me right away. Even I, I had a new pair of glasses on, and even, even then it didn't matter. It got it. And it was like, is this wrong? No. It, it, you got, and you guys are the first ones to do it. We were, and um, I, I love hearing your story of surprise because that's the, uh, the common reaction. People who come through that federal inspection station for the first time, they, they look back and they go, wait, is it over? Um, it happens. Now, I've had dates so- like that. <laughs> so well, this is this is nothing new show. to me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the um, Customs and Border Protection uh, folks have been so forward-leaning, so innovative, and they are such great partners to work with. Of course, I think uh, Miami provides a great host airport to try new things in like this. Because if it's going to go wrong, it will go wrong here. So and if, if, you and if th- we don't break it, it yeah. should last for everybody. So. Exactly. So the good news is on the on the uh, Customs and Border Protection side and biometrics. I mean. Yes, there's been a lot of publicity at, at, out of Dulles and Washington when, when they tried it there. But you guys are first, and it works. And it, now the question is, how quickly can they roll it in everywhere else? And, and, uh, and that's what they're working on. They're looking at replicating it. They've got uh, great um, proof data on, on its efficacy, on its accuracy. Uh, remember, the first goal is to protect the border. And so through that lens, the Customs and Border Protection folks are... Uh, analyzing how many false positives they get, how many mismatches. The numbers for those are very low. The numbers for positive identification are very high. And, of course, the, the fringe benefit from all this is fabulous customer experience improvement. And people are, are really raving about it, and it does cut down on the time. Let me talk to you about uh, an interesting sort of um, uh, theory and challenge in protecting the border and protecting the aircraft. So CBP and TSA, the two big entities that you see at at all of our major airports. And by the way, for interest of our our listeners, your background is you came from TSA. Indeed. Yeah. In fact, uh, my last post there was uh, deputy administrator, but my most fun post was when I was a federal security director here in Miami for seven years. And uh, what a uh, what a show this was uh, during those were a lot of formative years back then. Mark, we were it's, learning. it's still a show. <laughs> it is. It is. I'll have to grant you that. We um, at TSA and, and at CBP, they know that 99 point something percent of all the travelers coming through are good people with no ill intentions. The trick is how do you screen everybody either for immigration entrance into the United States or for security screening to get onto an airplane, treat everybody equally, or understand privacy rights and fairness and all those other elements that go into doing it the American way and still have a good security uh, or immigration regime. And uh, in, in this case, CBP, I think, has really gotten it right. They have managed to facilitate the movement of 90-some percent of the people in a very expeditious fashion while taking a close look at a very small percent wherein lie the bad people, the folks that are either trying to enter illegally, that are smuggling, that may have terroristic plans, all of those other things that are part of the CBP mission. And, and TSA on the other side of the slate is, is making progress as well because air traffic is growing, as you know. 
the airports are getting crowded. The planes are fuller. Uh, there's there's more uh, more people flying every year. We just hit 45 million passengers for the first time ever last year at Miami. Well, then that, that begs another question. What's your limit? How much can you actually handle? Well, um, th that, that is always going to be driven by process and technology. And I can tell you, not too many years ago on the federal inspection uh, side, on CBP's side, the lines were astronomical. The uh, staffing was a challenge. We built a brand new inspection station that had 70-some booths in it, uh, but rarely could they get enough officers to that build was them all. You remember that. I do. We've been speaking to Mark Hatfield, the Assistant Aviation Director and the Chief Security Guy. I can call you the Chief Security Guy, can I? You can. Okay, good. At MIA. You know, you talk about the culture of the CBP and that they've gotten their act together, and I would tend to agree with you on that. Uh, it's not just a matter of streamlining the process. It's a matter of making it more efficient in terms of what their needs are. Yes, and, and they are, uh, they're not afraid to push the envelope. They saw several years ago, not just at Miami, but as we mentioned earlier at uh, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, the major points of entry, they were getting uh, hammered with long wait times, American citizens returning home waiting an hour, two hours to get through the process. And they didn't just start on one solution and pilot it and, and, and try to proof test it. They started on multiple channels of solutions and, uh, you know, from kiosks that would automatically pre-populate your, your uh, passport information to the booth, to the global entry program you mentioned, to the early uh, testing of facial recognition. And so by pursuing multiple solutions, uh, they not only learned a lot in a shorter period of time, they actually were able to converge some of those solutions and, uh, and they keep doing it. I mean, they're pushing forward. They're, the facial recognition is just in its first generation. There's That's more right. to come. Now, let's go back to your previous job. And because this job we were just talking about is about when you come into the country, your previous job is when you get out of town, which is the TSA. There's a situation which I don't think is improved as much as it should. Um, and I'm not talking about pre-check and, and long lines and people not wondering where the, what line they're supposed to be in. I mean, you and I actually saw it in person when I, when I was in Miami not too long ago about how you calculate and manage waiting times just to go through primary security at the checkpoints, mm -hmm. right? And, and you were a witness to this. I was literally on that line for 10 minutes before I got to the guy to process my documents. I was then on line for 17 minutes just to get to the point of putting my carry-on bag on the conveyor belt. But the TSA would then say, I wasn't in line for, for 27 minutes, I was only in line for 10. Well, and, and by their definition, the screening begins at the moment that that officer starts checking your identification and your uh, travel documents. So it, that becomes a semantic argument, but it's, that's real time, real but minutes if you don't measure it, But if you don't measure it in real time, mm -hmm. you can't come up with real solutions. I w I'll grant you that. And, uh, you know, to the, to the end of, of shortening that process, making it more efficient, treating the 90-something percent uh, passengers that are there just to get on a plane and do nothing wrong in a very expeditious and, and polite right. professional way, they are, they're working on that. Now, and, I, I want, I'll tell you a funny story. I, I'm a member of PreCheck since PreCheck started. I mean, of course, why wouldn't I? I, I, I live at airports. But then I was approached by the folks at Clear and said, would you like to join? I'm like, no, I'm already a member of PreCheck. They said, well, just try it. So I was leaving L.A. the other day, and I joined, right? And the line at PreCheck was out the door. So I went to, I went to Clear. They did the biometrics. On my, on, they, they had registered my stuff on the, from my photo. And boom, in two minutes, they took me to the front of the line, and, and the TSA guy knew I'd already been cleared by clear, 
So he didn't even have to look at my documents. I got then in the line to go put my back. It worked. And that's a partnership that has never really quite blossomed, in my opinion. Well, the TSA was never really behind it at the beginning. Many have observed that. <laughs> <laughs> that was a political answer from Mark Hatfield, ladies and gentlemen. You know, it's uh, it's interesting. TSA, the pre-check was a brilliant idea. I mean, they got out there with that. Um, it was an opt-in program, respected uh, privacy, and, and people who didn't want to take part of giving more information to the government. So, And if you if you joined Global Entry, you got pre-check anyway. Exactly. It so was like a twofer. Paired up with CBP very nicely. The problem is... Um, to this day, they still have not enrolled enough people in that to really make it, uh, to, to extract the efficiencies from that program across the country. And so that's why when you go into an airport and you're already, you've planned your, your professional travel, you get to the pre-check line and it says, sorry, closed. Yeah. Because they don't have enough throughput at that hour of the day or during that bank of flights to justify the staff that have to go on that. So in order to really make it sing, PreCheck has got to have um, probably three or four times the membership that it has right now, and, and to get can that, I, you, can I be T- devil's TSA advocate? needs to partner with with a private sector uh, entity to, to handle some of that load. Yeah, and and to and to get out there and touch consumers. The government is good at a lot of things, but marketing has never been one of them. So they need a private sector marketing partner to get out there and really touch the clients, touch the uh, the passengers in their target audience who will sign up um, if presented with the uh, proposition. Hello? I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Many of you know who are regular listeners to this show. The very first place I like to go to, anytime I go to a new town, city, village, or anything, is the fire department. And the reason for that is they've been in everybody's house. They've been in everybody's hotel. They've been in everybody's restaurant. They know where to go. They know where not to go. Chances are they also know where to go to eat. And speaking as a fireman myself, I can attest to that. Uh, So, of course, I got to come over and get here to Miami to introduce our next guest, the fire chief from Miami Fire Rescue, uh, Joseph Zalabrian. How are you? Good, sir. Thank you for having me. Did I pronounce your last name the right way? Uh, you were close. Zeralbin. That's why I had to ask. It's Zeralbin. I won't make that, that mistake again, Chief. You know, and you look in the world of what you do, because it's not just fire. It's also fire rescue. Correct. Um, you're doing so many ambulance calls and EMT calls. Mostly, probably, I think most, those are most of your calls. Absolutely. About 80% of our calls are EMS in nature. Right. But you're dealing with such an evolving, changing population, um, not just in terms of the numbers, but in terms of the geography. So give me an idea, give my audience an idea of what kind of real estate you're covering here. Well, the city of Miami in and of itself is 35 square miles. And um, from a geographical perspective, that's not a huge mass of land. However, the city of Miami continues to grow exponentially uh, from year to year. And a lot of that has to do with the attraction of Miami and how many people want to live, work, and play in Miami. So the density gets crazy. Exactly. If you can't build out, then you build up. And that's what we're experiencing here. Wow. Which means it makes your job a little bit more difficult because one of my issues as a fireman, of course, is fire codes. And there are some communities, and we've done this show from some communities, where the fire codes, even though they're advanced and they're always changing and always being improved, there's a loophole. And the loophole is, as long as the same family owns the same hotel and they haven't changed ownership, in some communities, they're not required to upgrade the codes. It's crazy. So your enforcement and your inspection has to improve. 
Absolutely. And it's not only enforcement and inspection, but it, it, it is the actual interpretation of the code. Got it. Because, you know, two people can read the exact same code and interpret it in two different ways, which is why it's important for the code to give the latitude to the fire department and more specifically the fire marshal to make that interpretation. And nothing prohibits the fire marshal from being more restrictive than the code allows if they determine the need based upon the specific circumstances. Specific circumstances. I'll give you an example. I know that I've, I've studied this fire, as I'm sure you have too, the Grenville Tower fire in London, where the original, the initial reports came back and said the reason why that building burned as fast as it did and so many people died is because of the outdoor cladding on the building. Well, guess what? It wasn't just that. No sprinklers. Right. There's no sprinklers in the public rooms, no sprinklers in the in the guest rooms. Those people above the fourth floor never had a chance. Right. People don't realize that. So when I go to the first thing I do when I travel, I go to a hotel. I'm looking up. I want to see where the sprinklers are. I want to see where the heat sensors are. Even the carbon monoxide sensors, if they if they're really advanced, you know, are they in not just the hallway, but are they in my room? Exactly. And uh, the, the infrastructure is important. Those those emergency protective measures are there for a reason. They're they are there to identify a fire quickly. They are there to potentially extinguish the fire before it grows out of control or isolate it. But most importantly, what they're there for is to give occupants the greatest amount of time possible to escape. And that's why the fire codes are so important to us. We have incredible response times here in the city of Miami. We will put an entire building assignment, a, a, a contingency of trucks on the scene within three minutes. The next contingency within six minutes. Three minutes so, from the original alarm? Three minutes from dispatch. Wow. From the, from the time the alarm is dispatched. So we look at that. We analyze that on a daily basis to see if we are meeting our benchmarks. And um, we have spent an enormous amount of time as of recent looking at what we call the ultra high rises and ensuring our ability to, number one, influence the emergency protective measures in the structure, yeah. but also to be able to fight a fire on any floor in that structure and get water to the highest levels of and that, that structure. And that brings up my next point, because I've told people for a long time, very few fire departments can effectively fight a fire above the eighth floor. It just, it can't happen. Everyone, and I, when people, oh, but I wanted a high floor with a great view. I said, great, you'll have a great view of the fire department being unable to reach you. Are you listening to me? So now you have a challenge here, because as you said, people are building up. So how does that change the way you train to fight those fires? It's one thing to get to the building fast. You've got to get in the building, and you've got to get up. Absolutely, and, and that's our reflex time. You know, it's, it's, as you mentioned, it's only one piece of it to actually get to the building, but there's a lot of things that need to happen before you can get to a 60th floor. You're, you're, you're carrying a lot of equipment up there, and then once you actually get the firefighters to the floor, you have to ensure that the firefighters can be effective, and you do that by, uh, through a lot of pre-planning, through a lot of training, and for us, it, it ended up uh, rising to the level of completely revamping our policies and procedures. We have gone to the extent of purchasing high-pressure hose because of the pressures that are involved in pumping um, to the Altitude, 80th floor. Of course. Absolutely. Um, we have realized that our trucks 
are, uh, they struggle to pump the highest pressures. So we even change the direction as far as the types of trucks we buy. Everything moving forward is going to be two-stage pumps, which is essentially two pumps in one, which allows one, us one to pump achieve is like a those. Booster. It's like a booster. Exactly. Yeah. Achieve those highest pressures. We recently went to uh, one of our tallest buildings, Panorama, and I directed a fire truck to pump that building all the way to the roof. And even though it was far beyond the specs of the truck, we stood everybody back and I said, blow that, blow that truck up if you have to. I want to see if water comes out of the nozzle on the roof. And did it? And it did. Wow. And it did. But we far exceeded our safety factors. So in order to do that. In order to do that. So what we're doing is we are purchasing all new equipment. We're even retrofitting some of our old equipment because it's quicker in order to allow us to pump to the highest levels without putting an undue strain on the truck. What's interesting to me is this. You mentioned response time. And that is, you're rolling EMTs on every call. I'm assuming you are. Paramedics, yes. Paramedics, okay. That means the response time there is even great. So if, if, if you want to look for a best place to have a heart attack, it might be Miami, only because you're going to get there fast enough. We're going to get there quickly, and, uh, and it's important to point out that in the city of Miami, we have made a tremendous move towards towards combining the firefighter-paramedic concept. So all of our firefighters in the city of Miami are paramedics as well. That makes a big difference. Yes. It really does. Well, I, okay, I only have two words for you as it applies to me. Ride along, I'm coming. <laughs> You're more than welcome anytime you I, want. I got to do that. With response time like that, I mean, that, for people visiting this city, that's a great deal. Yes. I mean, it, it makes the difference. It does. Chief Joseph Zeralbin, did I pronounce it this time right? Yes, sir. Oh, good. What do I get for that? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> if you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. If you're in Miami, the other word that you use is immigration. Uh, it's a key gateway to the United States, a key en- entry point. Um, if you haven't noticed anything lately, immigration is in the news, and may, may, many people might even argue it is the news. Um, short of discussing building walls or building bridges, whatever works for you, when you go to an airport like Miami, and you know we just had Mark Hatfield on the show in the, in, in the first hour, so many of their entrants are coming to the United States for the first time or seeking citizenship or seeking asylum or any of the above. And one person who knows the process better than ever is Brian Becker, who's an attorney specializing in immigration. And it's so much a part of the travel experience. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Peter. In a given week, have you ever been able to get your arms around what kind of numbers we're talking about, about people who are trying to immigrate to the United States? Thousands and probably hundreds of thousands on a weekly basis all over the country. But I mean, everybody has a distinct case. Everybody has a specific a set of circumstances. Um, is there one policy that can ever deal with that? Probably never, not. Never. never, Peter. Anybody who is not a U.S. citizen, and actually sometimes U.S. citizens, that comes in at any port of entry in the United States is subject to inspection, subject to being placed in removal or deportation proceedings, um, and their entire immigration histories uh, can be reviewed. And if there's not enough time at inspection, they can send them to deferred inspection, which is a later appointment where they can actually start the deportation process. But let's go back to when you're on the plane. I remember 20 years ago, you're on the plane, they were handing out different forms to fill out that I was filling out, right? Was it the I-94? Yes. What was that? The I-94 is your legal stay in the country. So if you're entering a port of entry with, depending upon the type of visa, you fill out the information on the form, you present it to the inspector at the airport, and they, in their discretion, give you the stay. So if it's a tourist visa that you're coming with, normally the default is a six-month stay in the United States. 
And how many people ex- actually overstay? Um, a lot. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, the figures, I, I don't know. Right, but that's another issue. Because, it is an issue. Yeah. Um, Western Europeans typically do not overstay, so they qualify through the visa waiver program where they don't need visas to the United States. So they come in with their passport. They're authorized for a 90-day stay based upon statistics. Do they overstay? Absolutely. People from all over the world for different reasons. Somebody from Venezuela has a tourist visa and they're coming in, but they're really escaping what's going on in Venezuela. And they come in and they apply for political asylum. But the inspector doesn't know this at the airport. So they do authorize a six-month stay. But once the six-month stay expires, they're subject to removal deportation proceedings. Right. And we're talking about lots and lots of people. Then there's the green card. Yes. Explain how that works for people who are traveling. People who are permanent residents of the United States are also su- subject to inspection. So typically... But that su- doesn't necessarily mean they're citizens. They're not citizens. They're, they're entitled to reside in the United States, and this has to be their, their permanent home. Um, if you're outside the United States for more than six months as a permanent resident, it's presumed that you have abandoned your permanent residence. So when they try to return to the United States... They have a problem. They could be placed in removal proceedings. And if they're out for more than one year during any one trip, legally they have abandoned their permanent residence. Okay, but everything you've just told me now is nothing new in the process. Correct. That's been around for 20 years. Correct. Right. What's changed? The inspection process. It has changed. Um, it all starts at the consulates, applying for visas. At the U.S. consulates At the overseas. U.S. consulates all over the world. It's very, very tough to get visas now. We have investors, people who are multimillionaires trying to get into the United States, and for whatever reason, visas are refused. We don't know why. Uh, no excuse is given. People are subject to administrative processing, which means national security. When it comes to national security, they won't give any information to any attorney or anybody that could do whatever they want, and it could take forever to get a decision, if a decision is even issued. So what you're saying to me right now, and we'll get back to that a little bit later in the show, but what you're saying to me now, there is a huge backlog. Correct. And not getting any better. Correct. And just because you do have a valid visa in your passport doesn't mean that you will be admitted to the United States. So, for example, a tourist that's coming in that maybe you've traveled for the past 15 years without incident could be stopped by an inspector and they'll pull out a piece of paper and say, well, we have evidence you've been working in the United States for the past 10 years. And maybe the person has, maybe they hasn't. People are intimidated. There's no right to an attorney at inspection. And what happens? They can be uh, expeditiously removed at the airport. Let me tell you a story you mentioned about working. Uh, This happened to a friend of mine uh, 10 days ago, right? She's from Venezuela. She's a medical student on a student visa, legitimately going to medical school here in the United States. And we all know what the situation is in Venezuela right now. A really good time to be in the United States. Right, exactly. Um, Her mother is coming to visit her from Venezuela. So she goes to the airport at Chicago to, to, to to get her mom. Her mom, and she knows she's on the flight. Her mom doesn't come out. And there's no legitimate reason to keep her mom. What they were doing... They were trapping the daughter. Mm. And when she kept on asking, where's my mom? An inspector came out and said, listen, you don't have to talk to us, but it would be really helpful for your mom if you did. Not a good idea. Exactly. And what did they want to know from this young girl? What she was doing in Chicago. Going to school. And they asked her, are you working? You know what she was doing? She was babysitting for a friend of mine a couple of nights a week. Wow. That's it. While she was going to school, guess what? They let the mom in, they detained her. It is technically a violation of status. Students are not allowed to work without the authorization from the university. So they were legally correct to do it, but unfortunately she opened up her mouth and spoke to an inspector when she should not have. She was not passing through inspection. She should have refrained from speaking. Now listen to this. Here's a woman who only wants to do good. She only wants to learn and then go back to her country and make it a better country or stay in this country if she can come back. Correct. But because of that one incident, right, the door has been opened now 
and then another door shuts. Right. Is there any hope for her? For her? Possibly. Um, it is a violation of status. So once your status is violated and you have it in writing from the U.S. government, she is subject to removal proceedings. And then what happens? It's, it's very tough. When somebody violates their status, somebody's out of status, somebody you know, perhaps entered um, illegally through the border. In most cases, if, if violation of status, the only relief they can get under current law is marriage to a U.S. citizen or a U.S. citizen child over the age of 21. And she Assuming she's been here for more than one year and does not qualify for political asylum, because once you're here for more than one year, you're pretty much barred from asylum. There, there's, there's exception yeah. for extraordinary circumstances, but then everything's at the discretion of the judge. So, Brian Becker, what you're telling me is this is an extraordinarily complicated case. Absolutely. Then. Every case is complicated. But only because she answered a question truthfully, not realizing yep. this is a violation of babysitting? Yep. It's receive, it's, it's work. It's, she, she got paid for it. It's a violation of, of, her, of her F1 student status. And this is extremely I, I common. For, I have news for everybody. When I was a student, I worked. <laughs> you're a U.S. citizen. And it's know, different when you're on a visa. And I understand. We, we're we're total agreement on, the, on it. But the law is the law, and it is a violation of status. So people get in trouble. They don't retain attorneys, and they file applications, petitions with the U.S. government, never imagining they get into trouble. And because the information they put down was not correct, it was not legitimate, they get into trouble, and that's when they come to see an attorney. And attorneys can sometimes fix a situation, and unfortunately, sometimes they just can't. Well, th- this, this turns into a tragedy. Then. Absolutely. Brian... We last left off with talking about what people need to know now, not historically, because it, we're talking about thousands and thousands of people, and they're, you know, we look at travel as a right um, and as a freedom. We, 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 right. we love that. Right. But when you're dealing with, with immigration, there is no such thing as a right and freedom. Correct. It's, it's, it's basically a permission. Correct. So what is changing now, and what do people need to know? Well, what's different now is, well, first of all, the law has not changed in the past 22 years. But the application of that law has changed. The regulations have changed. The policies have changed. And immigration law is extremely complex because every single day policy is changing. We're getting memorandums on a daily basis, numerous from all the agencies. What we've seen in the past you know, two and a half years is more restrictive policy. I would say almost an anti-immigrant policy. And that's occurring at the consulates with visa issuance, at the borders with inspectors. Things are much uh, stricter. Um, it, it's, it's tough. We really feel an anti-immigrant um, policy, including with USCIS, which is the benefit section of Department of Homeland Security. When you apply for a green card, you apply for citizenship, your life falls in the hands of an officer, whether it's a consular officer, whether it's an inspector, whether it's an officer at the immigration office. Right. Um, they're using their discretion negatively, unfortunately. Um, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years, and I have seen the change. And it, we, I love my job. It's, it's fantastic. But dealing with the government now is tougher than it's ever been in the past 20 years. And that in, that's including after September 11, 2001, when, sure. of course, things were bad because we were scared. Um, but things are just, in the past two and a half years, things have just really tightened and, up. And, and in the process, uh, sort of a, a, of a sad byproduct of all this, we're seeing a brain drain. We're seeing a talent drain. Yes, um, absolutely. Even in our educational institutions. Yes. Um, the H-1B visas, they're for professionals. We need professionals. I get, I get calls from employers all over the country. We need to hire this chemist because he's the only one we could find with this special specialization. And there's only 65,000 visas available per year. We had a file on April 1st, which was last week. And by Friday, the visa numbers were cut off. And you probably have less than a third chance of being selected. Elected, it becomes a lottery. But the employers need them. But there's a lot of negative propaganda about the H-1Bs taking away jobs from U.S. citizens. It might be true in some limited cases, but most employers hire people, spend the money to bring in foreign workers because they can't find them here in the United States. And that's something that people are just denying. Yeah. Yeah. If you, it's, a, it's a lottery. If, if you're not selected. And we're not talking about farm workers in the Coachella Valley right. picking lettuce. We're talking highly about... Highly specialized workers. Yeah. Highly skilled. 
my baby beside me at the wheel, cruising and playing the radio, with no particular place to go. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. My next guest is a local, a real local. She, in fact, she started dancing at the age of two at the Coconut Grove Ballet. I bet you didn't even know there was a Coconut Grove Ballet or that there was any ballet in Florida because people don't think of it that way, but there is. And guess what? She must have done something right because she's now the director of the Coconut Grove Ballet. Carla Dominguez, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks, Peter. So let's talk about that. I mean, are people surprised to find out there's ballet in Coconut Grove? Yeah, actually, they are. Um, We've actually had the school for 20 years now, uh, more than 20 years, actually. And um, we're mostly student-based. And, um, you know, a lot of actually travelers find us out um, on Google, and they come by and want to take a class while they're vacationing. But you do performances, too. We do as well, yep. And they do them at Coconut Grove and Miami. Yes, so we do a lot of um, community performances with our student-based performing company, and we also do two major shows a year, which one is, of course, The Nutcracker in December. And you, and you, and you do something here at the Ritz-Carlton, too. We did our Nutcracker tea with the Ritz-Carlton for the first time. So basically, you have, a little, you have a little scone and a little dance. Yep, up close and personal, for sure. We had a bunch of little ones come, and they love to just get close up with the dancers and sit right next to that stage. So could I come next year as a soldier, as, as a toy soldier? <laughs> sure, <laughs> come on by. Did any of the guests want to do it? I bet they did. Yeah, they did. <laughs> but I mean, when somebody visits Coconut Grove, whether they're staying at this hotel or not, they can come and see you guys. Yep. And we're actually really close by up on 27th and Bird Avenue right there. And what pref- now you studied with some of the masters. Yes. <laughs> yes, I did. Like? Well, I have gone several years to New York City, actually. New York City is like the mecca of Martha dance. And Martha Graham, too. Martha Graham is there. American Ballet Theater. Gelsey Kirkland has her own school as well. And I've studied with all of them. <laughs> and you've been teaching, what, for almost 19 years now? Yep. You, <laughs> by the way, by the way this, is, yeah, this is radio. You look 19, so that's okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but when somebody comes here, how often are you actually doing the performances? How often? Ooh, we do um, probably at least once a month. We have um, a community show. We work a lot with Coconut Grove um, artists, and um, they do a, a monthly gallery walk and we often participate in that as well okay so the stupid question of the stupid questions is somebody staying here at the ritz carlton can they come and 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 train with you too of course yeah come on by we have a bunch of adult classes even we have uh little kid classes and there's drop-in classes as well well you know my middle name is plie you know that, don't you? no it's not no. no that would be followed by orthopedic surgery so let's not go there <laughs> But what is it that you're doing there that the, that the public doesn't really know about? Because it's all about visibility. Sure. Um, we not only do ballet, we actually have more. We have jazz, tap, acrobatics. We have a bunch of everything. Contemporary. Contemporary is very popular these days. Um, lyrical. Even flamenco. And 
what, coming up next month or in June, you've got, what, Neverland? We do. Our first show, our spring concert, usually is just a general theme. And this year, we've decided to do a story base, which is new for us. A lot of work, but it's really, really fun. And the kids are really excited about it. Now, just kids? No, adults as well. <laughs> are the adults excited about yes, it? Yes, and their parents are very excited as well. So we're looking forward to it. And what does it cost to go to a performance? For us, it's anywhere from 30 to $60 about for us. But that all goes to support the school and everything else. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're trying to actually build out a, a little bit bigger space now. Um, we, are, you know, we need the space for all our traveling during our dance classes and stuff, and uh, the school's growing. Now, I'm going to talk to you now as a local and a dancer, right? <laughs> okay. I, I, who weighs two pounds, by the way. <laughs> Where do you like to go for breakfast, lunch, and dinner here in Coconut Grove? Oh my gosh, there's so many places. Um, Green Street is great. It's pretty busy. And what are you ordering there? <laughs> I'm probably going to order something with goat cheese because I love their goat cheese omelets. And um, they also have waffles. They're great. Lattes. So, mimosas. And, and you're probably the kind of person <laughs> who eats as many waffles as you want and never gains weight. <laughs> well, I could have a couple, but I still try and keep it balanced. <laughs> Lunch and dinner? Lunch and dinner, probably Lulu's across the street. There's Locale, which is great for burgers, really um, different types of burgers that you won't find anywhere. Ballet so. burgers. Of course, ballet. Ballet yeah. burgers, yeah, of yeah, course. Of course. Yeah. And dinner real fast. Dinner, um, let's say Peacock Cafe is great. That one's a nice, different southern kind of food. And what are you ordering there? What am I ordering there? Probably something with chicken. So big chicken wings <laughs> for the dancer. Yes. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. But I would Next guest, like so many people in Florida, ain't from here. He's a Queens guy. Uh, like so many people in Florida, he's from New York, but he didn't come directly from Queens here. He, he first did a stint in Los Angeles at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. He is now the director of the Paris Art Museum right here in Miami. Franklin Sermons, welcome. Thank you, Peter. Good morning. Uh, most people, I'm going to make this wild assumption, sure. don't know about your museum. Yeah, we're trying to change that. We're trying to change that quickly. I mean, tell me what the museum is about, its history. Sure. Tell me about its evolution, because you came from a, a kick-ass museum in Los Angeles, yeah. right? Yeah. And they, they wooed you down here. Absolutely. You know what it is? I mean, it's Miami. It's the opportunity to be in this city at this point in time and to be running a museum like ours. Our museum was born, if you will, in 1984. So you're young. Yeah. We are. In That's the scope young. of things, we are young, 35 years yeah, old. Exactly. And born to do what? We're here to present international, modern, and contemporary art and have been doing that for almost 35 years. Is it mostly the Caribbean? No. What we'd like to do is we want to be able to provide something that is unique within the scope of museums. Just like when you go to LACMA, you're not going to LACMA to see abstract expressionism the way you are in New York or Boston. If you want to look at the newest artwork and you want to see what's happening in the world, particularly as it pertains to this region, you got to come to Miami. That's, That's right. what we're trying to do. Welcome to Miami. <laughs> but I mean, is there a particular style that you're presenting? So we're presenting contemporary art, but we want to show and showcase from our community. And that means being the best at presenting the work of Latin America and the Caribbean. 
And a lot of local artists, too. We do a lot of local artists, absolutely. But we look at it as, you know, we look at Miami as being a very international city as it is. We're about to show an artist from Bogota, a woman named Beatriz Gonzalez. And, you know, before that, it's a, a real series. And, you know, you mentioned Colombia. Yeah. I mean, if you want to see cutting-edge art these days and street art, I mean, go to Medellin and Absolutely. look at the streets. I mean, it, it, it's, it's unbelievable. Absolutely. And, 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 and it's not too long before that's going to find its way either through your regime or other avenues to mainstream USA as well. Absolutely. And that's what we're doing. We're, we're the place that you come to when you want to see artists from South America, you want to see artists from Central America, Latin America, and particularly the Caribbean. You have to come through Miami. Now, is your collection on rotation, or do you have permanent pieces too? We have a permanent collection installation that is usually up for a year, and so we're in the midst of one. Well, that's one. not permanent. <laughs> we call it a permanent collection because it's stuff that already is in our collection. Okay, so right? it goes back into storage then. Absolutely. Okay, fine. Okay. Absolutely. So much for permanence, I guess. <laughs> the idea of permanence in this day and age, I think, is tricky. No kidding. <laughs> no kidding. All right, but you do rotate most everything. We sure do. We sure do, and we bring in exhibitions from around the world. When you got here, what was the most, uh, you've been here, what, almost four years? I've been here three and a half years. Oh, that yeah. was close, come yeah, on. Yeah, totally. In that nearly four years you've been here, what's been the most surprising exhibition you've done that was a, a real game changer? Well, for me, I have to think about an exhibition like football, the world's game, right? So we did an exhibition that centered around the thematic of just the sport and the many metaphors that come from And we're that talking sport. soccer. Absolutely. Yeah. I know we are down here in Miami Dolphins country, but no, we are talking about football, absolutely. the international game. And how did you display that? I mean, what, what, what was it, how was it manifested? So we had a variety of things, video, sculpture, painting. And we had artists, you know, well-known artists like Andy Warhol or Vic Muniz from Brazil. And artists Andy that, Warhol did stuff on soccer. He sure did. Who knew? I'm still hung up on the Campbell soup can. <laughs> well, about 13 years after the soup cans, Andy Warhol, of course, being in New York City, New York City being the site of the New York cosmos coming into existence, and the great Pelé came to New York in nah, 1975. That's what it, was. it was Pelé. And it was all about Pelé. And they hung out at Studio 54, and they hung out in the studio. He took Polaroids of, of, the, of the player. He made paintings of the player, and that's some of the stuff that was on view. See, it was the Campbell Soup Can, Marilyn Monroe, <laughs> and Pelé. Exactly. <laughs> So that was one of your interesting exhibits. I yeah. think it's a pivotal exhibition for us because it does two things, right? It looks at art, and it looks at art from the standpoint of a wider popular culture. So there are many ways for people to come into the museum who may not be interested in, in art as, as a topic beyond the relationship to the sport that was such a part of that show. And then another thing that I think that show does is, you know, it's really aimed at many different generations. We're talking to Franklin Sermons, who's the director of the Paris Art Museum in Miami, otherwise known as PAM. Yes. Uh, you're getting more than 300,000 visitors a year. We sure are. What's the cost of entrance? The cost of entrance is $16. So it's reasonable. Yeah, it's, it's pretty much average, but we also have several free days during the month. Uh, uh, particularly days like Mondays? or What we have is first Thursdays and second Saturdays. You just got to keep track. <laughs> and, of course, don't forget the gift shop. Absolutely not. We have an incredible Pam shop. See, I knew that, I, I knew that was coming. <laughs> exactly. So if I wanted to get Andy Warhol's football picture of, of Pele, it's there? We have that. <laughs> gee, I'm shocked. Um, any day you're closed? We are closed on Wednesdays. Wow. Today. So it's the perfect day yeah, to be here. Exactly. 
So bottom line, where are you located in Miami? We are located at 1103 Biscayne Boulevard, and that is right across the park from American Airlines Arena, so you cannot miss us, and right down the street from the R Center for the performance. So go arts. early to a Miami Heat game, and then and then you can absolutely uh, go see the Paris Art Exactly. Game. I posted a picture yesterday of Dwayne Wade at the museum on his, a couple on his of years last ago. game. On, on his, his last, last game, game here in Miami. Absolutely. Franklin Sermons, again, the director of the Paris Art Museum here in Miami. Thank you so much for joining Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away If you can use some exotic booze There's a bar in far Bombay Come on and fly with me, let's fly, let's fly I always fly like to ask away. the locals everywhere I go what's going on And my next guest is almost a local, she's been here 20 years, from Detroit But she's also the editor for Miami.com, Amy Reyes, how are you? I'm fine, how you doing? Good, I mean... Miami is not one destination. Coconut Grove is not one. I mean, I look at Miami the way I look at Los Angeles now. It's like, you know, 53 separate incorporated yeah. cities in desperate search of a community. Yeah, it's kind of like a Game of Thrones. Like, we've got all these different kingdoms. So, like, you can get a different vibe in, in every part of Miami, depending on where you're at. All right, so, so we're now in the kingdom of Coconut Grove. Indeed. All right, and, and is it a kingdom? <laughs> I would say so. Yeah, it's definitely a kingdom. All right, so let's talk about what's changed, because you've been here 20 years now. Yeah. Coconut Grove, when I first came here, was only residential. It was, you know, this, this hotel didn't exist. You didn't have a lot of restaurants, right? Right. And then suddenly, what happened? Well, when I first got here, Coconut Grove was just starting to, to become a place that no longer was in fashion. When Cocoa Walk opened and Mayfair opened and all the, um, when they, they built that destination kind of mall place, that place was really popping for a while in the early 90s, and then something happened. It just, people just stopped going, and the beach became popular, and then later on, Wynwood started to become a destination. And so what happened was, um, little by little, uh, restaurants started to open up on the streets in Coconut Grove. Small restaurants. Small restaurants, chef-driven restaurants, and places that people actually wanted to hang out. And so little by little, people started coming back. And now uh, Cocoa Walk is going to undergo like this huge renovation. It's going to become um, like offices and shopping. And it's getting a complete remodel. And it's going to really change the whole vibe of the neighborhood. But it's already, already Coconut Grove is one of the places that if you're going to come and visit Miami, you should definitely come here. One of my favorite restaurants is in Coconut Grove. I like to go to this place called Glass and Vine. Because it is a restaurant that is right in front of a park. So you can just grab a table and you can drink all day and your kids can play in the park. So it is one of the best places to go. If you so have basically to. you're a drunken mom. I am a day drunken I just want to make sure we got yes, this under control. That is exactly. Like my itinerary is complete when I go to Glass and Vine. I get good food, I get wine, and my kids have fun. Hey, where's mom? Oh, she's uh, drinking. She's yeah, over there yeah, getting. Uh-huh, got yeah, it. Yeah. But here's what I like about Coconut Grove. From this hotel, the Ritz-Carlton, I don't have to drive. I can walk. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's a very un-Miami thing because Miami is so sprawling that when you find enclaves where you can actually walk, it's it's a big, it's very refreshing. I'll tell you what else is different between Coconut Grove and Miami, and you'll laugh. I used to take red eyes to get to Miami when I was working uh, on some stories. And, of course, you land at you know, 530 in the morning from L.A., mm -hmm. you get in the cab, and as you're getting over to Collins Avenue, Right, you're seeing everybody coming home dressed in what they wore the night before right, the club. Right, right. The but they're shame. not coming home. They're actually going to work wearing the same outfit, right? Yeah. I don't see that in Coconut Grove or not. No, it's a little bit more residential. residential. Yeah. yeah, it's a little more family-focused. And that's why they, there was a big controversy back in the day where they wanted to start having the bars close earlier in Coconut Grove um, because the college kids would get pretty rowdy. So, like, Coconut Grove has kind of become a bit more tame. 
Except for the drunken mom in the park. Exactly. But that's happening during the day, so there's no way to avoid it. <laughs> Sorry. The spectacle you is realize, You realize I've just ended your career. That's yeah, all, right, yeah, basically. Fine. All right, but let's talk about, you know, what's changed. We know the restaurant scene has changed. Yeah. Right? What about the art scene? In the Grove or in Miami in general? In the Grove first. In the Grove... I think that like the artists are constantly moving to more affordable neighborhoods. So the Grove has kind of diminished in that sense. The only, um, the real art scene in, in Miami now is it moved to the design district in Wynwood. And so those are the places where you really find a, an art. No scene. longer Lincoln road. No, definitely not. No, I mean, Lincoln road is essentially a mall at this point. It is. Yeah. But it's, but it's a walkable mall. It's a walkable mall and it's, it's clean. It's safe. It's pretty. So it, it has everything that you would want in a, you know, a beach destination or a, tourist destination so what's the biggest surprise for you about coconut grove and if somebody's visiting here what would be the biggest surprise for them i think the biggest surprise would be the shifting um architecture like if you go through the neighborhoods of coconut grove you'll see that there's a lot of people who have are developers that have bought the old kind of cottagey looking houses torn them down completely and built these like square boxes that are completely out of step with the architecture that has historically been part of the kind of character of coconut grove and I think that's one of the more disruptive. disruptive things. And what's come along with that has been a lot of the removal of the canopy, which is the the, the trees and the um, the foliage that kind of characterize the neighborhood has gone by the wayside to in order to create these in order to create these um, box houses that take up the whole footprint of the lots. So there's some uglification. I, I mean, some people might think they're nice. I'm not sold. You're more of a traditionalist. I am a traditionalist. I like, like the, the shotgun houses. I like the um, the cottage-type houses. We've been joined by Amy Reyes, who's the editor-in-chief of Miami.com. Uh, and now's the time where I get to really find out where she likes to go, where she's going to take me, but she doesn't know she's taking me yet. Okay. Okay, we got a deal <laughs> here. So, you know, you mentioned the restaurant scene earlier mm-hmm. um, and all the small restaurants. I right. love small restaurants like I love independent bookstores. I, right. I love to support the community that way. Mm-hmm. Right? So we're not talking chains. We're talking essentially family-run, family-owned restaurants. Right. All right. Where are we going for breakfast? Okay. Well, I would take you to the place that I go every Sunday, which is Deli Lane. It's in South Miami. It is actually um, it's a restaurant in the morning, and then at night, it's like a hangout for UM college kids. So I go during the PG time because they have the $6, <laughs> they have $6 mimosas. And as I told you, I like to day drink with my children. And so... <laughs> They've got $6 mimosas. They've got all the... I'm telling you, child welfare is coming to this they show. They are. They are. They're right outside. Yeah. Um, so they have all the eggs every way that you could ever want them. And the prices are good. And I specifically go and I ask for Jenny. She's my waitress. It's, it's almost like a, um, a tradition, a weekly tradition. We go there every week. We find Jenny. We get a table. We drink our $6 mimosas. We eat our eggs. And we have a great day. You know, you mentioned something there that I think is important to to, to add to. And that is... The loss of the art of the conversation. Um, I will go to restaurants where I know someone who knows me who wants to talk to me and I want to talk yeah, to them. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and the food can only be marginal sometimes and I'm just happy to be recognized. You, you know, know something? People would probably say this. They might say this about this place. This is my place where I like to go the food to is, get regular food. You know what? The food's okay. The food's regular. But you have a good time. Exactly. Like I'm not going, I'm not going to take you to the place where for the $15 avocado toast. I'm going to take you to the place where I'll probably run into my kid's karate instructor. I'll probably see one of the, the parents from my kid's school and Jenny will take good care of me. And by the way, can we talk about the ridiculous over the overblown avocado toast now? Yeah, it's a, it's a lot. 
It's a lot. No, I'm not even talking about the prices. It's like everybody seems to have to have that on their menu. Yeah. I'm sick of avocado toast. I know. And the funny thing, too, is everybody in Miami, well, not everybody, but most people in Miami have an avocado tree. So, like, it it boggles the imagination that you could make avocado toast so expensive. Right. Plus, it'd be Coles to Newcastle. It, yeah. Well, exactly. Same. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, okay. We've got breakfast under control. Right. What about lunch? Okay. So, I'm going to take you to the design district. Because it's I, fancy. I, yeah, but I also like the design district when it, when it wasn't fancy. Yeah, well, it's been fancy for a bit now, so we all just kind of got to strap in. Every time I go to the design district, I see all these stores, like the new stores, and I'm like, I've never heard of that brand. I can't afford to even go inside the store. But there is a food hall there, and food halls are kind of a little bit more low-key. Because By the it, way, I love food halls. Yeah. Uh, there's one in Lisbon I love. There's one in, in Warsaw that I love. They're popping up everywhere. Everywhere. Miami is food hall crazy right now. Yeah. Yeah. We, we have so many food halls that have popped up, and people love them. And this one in particular, it's actually an import from uh, New Orleans, the St. Rock's Market. But they have mainly local vendors that are inside of Well, it. you have to keep it local. Yeah, you, you got to keep, keep it local. You have to keep it local. And so if you go there, like, this is a good place to go. They have, like, a happy hour from 4 to 7. Uh-oh, here we go yeah, again. I'm sorry, guys. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I told you, I like running and wine in that order. So you go to St. Rock's. They have a happy hour. You can get... Um, you can get sushi from Itame. Itame is one of those. Uh, it's the the kiosk has um, a brother sister team of chefs that do uh, like Peruvian Nikkei cuisine, the the kind of Peruvian Japanese uh, fusion, and it's really that that's really delicious. But I always go and I always get the pho from I can't remember the name of the vendor. What it's the guy on the right. You just walk in and it's the guy on it's the, the right. It's the guy on the right. The guy on the right. Yeah, you just walk in, you get the pho, you sit down, and it's just basically. So you've been like, drinking again. It's just the guy on the right. <laughs> I walk in and I just go straight to the foe. But then I have friends who love, there's a, um, there's a fresh uh, pasta bar, they, a guy that makes fresh pasta, like handmade pasta. That, that place is amazing, apparently. But I always get the foe. The foe is my thing. <laughs> so you go with the foe? I go with the foe. Okay, got yes. it. All right. And the happy hour deals. Don't forget that. I, at this point, I think we've-, we've You'll never uh, we've, forget we it. We understand you very clearly Yes, here. You, got, you, got my, you got my vibe. We do. We do. And now dinner. Um, dinner. Okay, so for dinner, we're going to Winwood. We're going to go to Norman Van Aken's new restaurant. I love Norman's been on the show many times. He is. He's. He's the god. He's the yeah, man. He is. So he's got this new restaurant in. Winwood. And he's. And by the way, he's not one of those celebrity chefs that like is so full of himself. Norman's just no, a really he's a, nice he's guy. He's a normal dude, and yeah. he's a normal dude, and he's got a lot of fun stories to tell, and he's he's fascinating to listen to. You can hear him on the radio sometimes telling his stories, and he's got um, politically incorrect comment here. I had the best foie gras in my life at Norman's. Well, I think it's on the menu at his new place, too. Yeah. Yeah, so the this place three is a, it's really beautiful. Like, I just feel fancy being in it because the, the chairs are all velvety, like blue velvet, and then there's this green velvet um, booth, and then there's this gorgeous picture of Frida Kahlo. And the service is, there is no place in Miami that has better service. Like, you will not, like, if, the waiters could put the fork in your mouth and like move your mouth up and down to chew for you. They would do it. Like th- that's how attentive they but, are. But Amy, after enough drinks, isn't that what they're doing? With Pretty you? much. Okay, I'm just they're going. calling your Uber for you too. <laughs> but no, and and it's three because it's a three course meal. It's a it's a fixed price menu, and it, it shifts. So it's like every time you go back, it might be different. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world.
If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.